A Republic Airways flight operating for American Airlines is flying from Atlanta to New York when they need to return. What emergency causes flight to have to return to Atlanta after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... Today we have... <laughs> Hi, this is Kaylin. And I'm James. Kaylin's been with us before, and they brought their partner, James. Yes. But I'm not the same Kaylin that is the other Kaylin. Right. Right. <laughs> it's going to be interesting having two guests, but it's, it's going to be actually, I think, important because neither one of you has much of a background in aviation at all. And... I've been on a plane. It's not to say that... <laughs> yes. Great. And it's not to say that Miranda would necessarily know that much about this one. Nope. But it will definitely be helpful to have extra people to ask extra questions, because this is also not going to be a very long episode. Right. And James is looking to potentially start their own podcast and wanted a little bit of experience of what it's like to be on one. So here's a trial. It's a paid. No, just kidding. No, it's actually not that bad. Well, well. <laughs> there's There's things about it, of course, yes, but... If you, it depends on how you want to do your podcast. Everybody's a little different and such, but we have our style. We have the way we do things. I, I think chiefly as long as you're just having a good time and having fun. I think that's all Pretty that much. really matters. When we're actually recording, yeah, it's usually Randall time. And, and this is the best podcast I've been on. Excellent. Also, also the only one. Yeah, so. But <laughs> one for I one so far. I always love being here. Right. I don't think we have any new patrons. I didn't see any between. We the just last recorded recording. like three days ago. Yeah, so I don't oh, think. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, so no, there's not much has changed in the last it, it three days. It felt like a week. It was believe three days me, ago, it felt like. A believe week. me, I know you had all your own like work stuff, and I had obviously we had like a crafting day plus my birthday extravaganza with the yeah. family, which was actually it was great. But and then uh, I even went to Salt Lake City today and back. Like I, I've been all over the map today <laughs> and over the last three days. So since we recorded last, it does feel like a week. So many things have happened. It's all new stuff. Yes. You should do all the normal things. You should sign up for the newsletter and answer all the trivia questions. And you should also get ducks and merch and be a patron. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there you go. And all that jazz. Get those ducks. Get those ducks. Those free yeah. ducks. You get free ducks. Yep. You should get them free ducks. You have pre-signed ones right in front of you, as a matter of fact. Yes, I do. Are we supposed to mail those? I have no idea. Ask Paige. <laughs> good point. We're real good at this. Okay, anyway. So Paige is now the person that basically runs the podcast. <laughs> and and they were out Behind the scenes for a stuff, series yeah. of time, and it actually turned into a disaster. Yeah. So. It's okay. Everything's back up and running. Yes. We're good. So, what are we covering today, Nicholas? Today. We are covering American Airlines Flight 4439, also Republic Airways Flight 4439. We'll talk about that. Thank you to Kevin for recommending this episode. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. So Republic Airways still very much exists. They are a regional carrier, just like we had last I, week. I figured, yep. yeah. Just, and, and this continues our weird trio of incidents that happened in 2019. Not accidents, incidents. Also, don't get the flight numbers mixed up. They have the same numbers. Last week was 49.33. This week is 44.39. Yeah, just to make things easy. <laughs> and also a regional carrier operating for a major airline. So, slight side tangent. Yes. I posted 204 last night. Uh-huh. I screwed up the flight numbers so bad. Whoops. 
<laughs> I put 205. It was 503. Uh-huh. I don't know how I came into that. And I thought you fixed it, but you did it. And then I looked at Oops. it again and went, I must not have hit save. <laughs> Oops. Oops. So. Uh, things happen. If anything accidentally says 205, I don't know where that number came from. That's Just okay. so we're aware. That's all right. Your brain. Your beautiful, beautiful brain. <laughs> we can always figure it out later. Sorry, guys. Things are weird. Anyways, so yes, this continues our weird and, and finalizes our weird trio of 2019 accidents that were all recommended in a row by in a series by different people. Yes, all three people were different people. And just happened to be all in the same three weeks. Like, yes. it, it just very... Good job, guys. Coincidental. I don't know. Just thank you for doing that, I guess. This is the weird 2019 incident series. But this accident, or this incident... Occurred on November 6th of 2019. And you all did it in chronological order. Yeah, that That's too. so weird. So this was the last of the, the bunch. This was an Embraer Regional Jet E-175LR, or if you really want to be technical, it's an ERJ-17200LR. I know. Whatever. <laughs> Nerd. Somebody Alert. out there's Somebody out there is going to appreciate the fact that I know that. Nerd. It's not yes. me. Alert. So... Just the this one had the tail number November one one seven Hotel Quebec, but this because it's a one seventy five, which is the most common version of the Embraer regional jet, the E jets series specifically. They're very common. It, basically, everybody uses them now. American, Delta, United, Alaska, they all use them. And then you go around the world, and it's one of the most common around the world too. There's so many airlines that use them. How long has this model been out? This model's been around for, oh gosh, I don't even know. It's probably been around since Please the hold, I'm looking it up anyway. Late 2000s, you think? Late 2000s, early 2010s. That's kind of the common... That's when they started becoming really popular. The E-Jet family started in 2004. Right. And that was with the E-170 and the E-190. The 175 fit somewhere in the middle. The E-175 launched with its primary customer as Air Canada Yep. in July of 2005. That's correct. Air Canada. It was a weird thing because they've always bought Bombardier because Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the E-175 is a variant of the E-170. It's ever so slightly longer, just barely. Like it fits a, an extra couple rows of seats. That's basically all. Doesn't really look that different on the outside. I mean, even as a matter of fact, if you go with a base E-170 and a base E-175, even I can hardly tell the difference when I stare at them because they're so alike. The E-170 is just a little bit stubbier. So that's the only reason that I can really ever tell. Otherwise, the original versions of the E-170 and 75 had all the same features, same engine, same winglets, everything. The newer versions of the 175, the LR versions and such, have this newer, very, very tilted out winglet. Winglets, yeah. And they're really obvious. And most airlines fly those because they like the capabilities of it. It's a really comfortable 76-seat jet, and it's a very strange but niche thing that 76 is the number and there's actually a really good explanation for it so in a single class configuration the e-175 fits 78 the e-170 fits 72 right and that's at a 32 inch pitch if you go down to a 30 to 29 inch pitch it's 88 and 78 people respectively if you're in a dual class Mm -hmm. configuration it's about 76 on the e-175 and 66 on the e-170 right 76 is what they always fly. There's a handful of E-170 operators still in the U.S. and around the world. They're still relatively common, but the E-175 is far more common because it fits right in that 76 market, which is 
perfect. The other 76-seat jet is the CRJ-900 from Bombardier. And the reason why that's pertinent is because all of the pilots' unions at major carriers and then in the regional carriers all agreed that 76 is the max number of seats that a regional carrier airline is allowed to operate on any single aircraft. So 76 is a very niche number, and they have to do that on purpose. They literally can't set it up as a single class because of the unions, basically. They said, in order for us to keep enough pilots in mainline and not eat up all the regional market, all that, then it has to be 76 seats max on the regional market. It's a weird thing. There's percentages and everything. It's a very long, complicated thing with the pilots' unions that caused all that. Weird to think that a pilots' union basically has that much influence over the regional jet market, but they do. I Unions have a lot of power. Oh, yeah, they do. Believe me, because I am a union worker. Right. So. Yep. I mean. Same. Yeah. The airline industry is driven by unions. Which is, is good, because yeah. otherwise yeah. Yeah. you get a- overworked and underpaid. Right. Just say. Yeah, <laughs> that happens to you anyway. Yes, but it would be even worse if I didn't have a union, okay? Yes, yes I can agree. I can agree. Don't At even least go- I get paid for subbing for other classes. Don't even that get me didn't started. always happen. <laughs> We're not getting Nick on the tangent of teacher pay. Not right now. I haven't done that rant in a long time now because even I got tired of talking about it because all it does is just make me really angry. Yep. That's it. That's all it, it makes does. makes all of us really angry. So, anyways. This is a flight from Atlanta. Georgia, of course, to LaGuardia in New York City. I don't have names for the crew, presumably because these crews actually probably still out there flying today. Just saying. I mean, obviously, we know what we know about accidents. We know that nobody died because this is in 2019. So. And they still use this flight number. Yes, they do. So I don't have names, but I have all the other information. Well, most of the other information, actually. The captain was a 32-year-old male. He had 4,500 hours total at the time, of which... 3,135 hours were on the E-175, which is a lot. With that kind of hourage, you're very, 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 very close to actually going mainline. Usually they're looking for about 5,000. So that's pretty... This this captain was very close to being able to go mainline at, at some of the major airlines. Although some captains like to stay in the regional airlines for a while and just ride it out. And I don't blame them. I mean, there's reasons for that. You get to go home every day. Yeah. Yeah, they like the regional market. Some of them just like the little hops to, to smaller places and easier flights and stuff. But at the same time, some people want to go mainline, make more money, and I get it. I get it. The first officer was a 30-year-old male, so only two years younger. I don't know how many hours total, but I know that he had 677 hours on the E-175. They had his total hours listed as 677 also, but I know that's not true. Not in 2019. Are you kidding me? <laughs> He had to have the 1,500 minimum, so... Yep. We know that he had at least... 1,500 hours. Plus 677, that we can assume, but I don't know how many total, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Not really super pertinent. The flight crew had started their day at Detroit at around 2 p.m. local time. All of this is in Eastern time, so... The flight crew flew from Detroit to LaGuardia in New York, with the captain as the pilot flying and the first officer as the pilot monitoring. The aircraft and crew were on the ground at LaGuardia for a short time, while the next flight took a small delay. Then they flew from LaGuardia to Atlanta, with the first officer as the pilot flying and the captain as a pilot monitoring, so switching roles. At Atlanta, all was normal as the aircraft was turned for the next flight back to LaGuardia. So what I mean when they say when we say turn, this is this is airline lingo for sure. 
Uh, turn is quite literally that. Airplane arrives. The turn is that time on the ground before you send it away. And a turn, you know, if the airplane stays overnight, we don't consider it a turn. The airplane is an overnighter. But when it just does a quick turn and leaves, we call it a turn. So most of my flights where I've gotten on a plane where the same crew or almost the same mm-hmm. crew is, mm-hmm. like they're taking like three different legs. We three call different them. legs, yeah, yeah. Yes. Three different legs, and I'm like, oh, hey, this plane is coming from this city to this city, and it'll be here. Right, exactly. So that's just, that's a turn. That's a turn, yep. So Not, not just because it turns around, but because it literally right. gets on and then turns to go right back into the air. Yep, cool. okay. yep, yep. And there's a lot of operations that go into making it a tight turn. Um, per airline procedure, there's actually what is called... MTA, minimum turnaround. Yeah, different airlines have different terminology for this, but uh, a lot of us use MTA, which is maximum turn allowable, is what that actually means. So that is the maximum amount of time that we theoretically have to turn the airplane. And anything beyond that is considered a delay. Right. Oh. Because that's what's within schedule, so. And even one minute over. But this also dictates, and this is how we control in the airline industry, when the airplane arrives, say, an hour, two hours late, of course, it's already well beyond its next scheduled departure. So how do you dictate how long you have to do all of the things you need to do on the ground? Well, MTA remains the same. So normally with schedule, you have more than MTA time if the airplane arrives on time and departs on time. Then you usually have more than that MTA to play with. So if it arrives on time, you know you have all the way until scheduled departure, STD, we call it. I mean, unfortunately, but that's what it is. Scheduled departure time. And that is the essence of you have all that time to get the airplane off the ground by schedule. But if it goes outside of schedule and it now is delayed too far, then you have at least MTA to turn it. And that's how they determine how long the airplane is delayed for once it's arrived. So so the airline you work for mm-hmm. has E-175s. Yes. What is the MTA on an E-175? I believe 35 minutes. So you have to Which, get everyone off, get it cleaned. Yes. Get everyone on. Some people in the industry probably just went, what the? Because <laughs> 35 minutes is very short. It's very short. I've been on a flight where the, the captain came on and was saying, you know, we're behind schedule. So thanks for hurrying up and doing this. And mm-hmm. everything was moving really briskly. Yeah. I'm not sure that it only took 35 minutes, even when it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, hurry up. Mm-hmm get to your seat right, right. now. We need right. to go. And it right. still felt, I th- I'm pretty sure it was longer than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really depends on the plane type. Yep. And then you end up taking a delay and so on and so forth. We could go on a tangent about that, but I'm not going to. Six whole passengers, as opposed to six half passengers, six whole passengers <laughs> boarded the flight to LaGuardia from six Atlanta. whole passengers. Which to me is honestly shocking. Between the busiest airport in the yeah, world that's it. and New York City. And it can carry 76, right? Yes. And then there's So they only had a whole six. 70 seats open. All those people could spread out so far. <laughs> yeah. you, have, you have five aisles to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which, by the way, we've been on flights like that, and it's so mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm going to go to this row, and um, I'm going to just lay down. After okay? takeoff. Don't yeah, like our, our flight from Baltimore, yeah. where we had like a whole, I think there was like 23 people. In an our, A321. Yeah, in an A321, a Spirit A321. So that's that airplane holds like 180-something people. It wasn't even like 10% full. 
Yeah, after Ridiculous. we took off and got to cruising altitude, the the flight attendants were like, "Please feel free to move." There's so many open spaces. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We each had our own aisle. Our, everybody our, had our their own row. row. Everybody had their own row. They all, they all had. We all had economy couches. Yep. <laughs> everybody gets their own secret club. That's right. The captain was to be the pilot flying, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this leg. So that means the captain does all the actual flying of the airplane, you know, using the, 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 the controls. controls and everything, while the first officer does all of the monitoring of the instruments and and doing the checklists and such, radio calls. Arguably, the pilot monitoring almost has more to do in those instances than the pilot flying, but the pilot flying still has a continuous role to play, no matter what. So You can say that again. Mm-hmm. The aircraft pushed back from the gate, and the engines were started. The air traffic controller then gave the flight instructions to taxi to runway 09 left at Atlanta. 9.05 p.m. in five seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff on runway 09 left. The takeoff was normal. However, Uh-oh. immediately after rotation, the aircraft continued to pitch up past its normal climb pitch, and it did so relatively rapidly, which was a little strange. A little sus magus. Yes, and everybody noticed. Suddenly, the flight was climbing at about 4,000 feet per minute, which is which is pretty heavy. That's pretty steep. That's pretty heavy, but actually, it's not entirely outside of normal operations. On initial climb out, some some airliners will climb out at 4,000, especially in busy areas like yeah. Newark. Well, any, Newark. <laughs> anytime you have like noise abatement protocols. Yep. London. Yep. London. Uh-huh. London. But London has weird noise abatement. They actually, they, they do an initial climb out that's pretty steep, and then they're supposed to, like, level off and idle, basically. Idle fly for a little ways. Is it San Diego that also has a really steep climb out? Oh, yes. San Diego. When, when, they, when they reverse mm-hmm. their... Um, yeah, they have to get over the hill. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy steep, and you yeah. feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Newark is always the crazy one to me. Newark, they, like, rock it out because they have to. It's all neighborhoods around Newark. I don't remember anything about that takeoff. That's okay. I care to. That's okay. All I remember about my time going out of Newark is it was crazy rainy, so they had to put a hold on all the departures. And when we finally went, I was already a little concerned because there was lightning and stuff going mm-hmm. on. And like, we're taking off? Mm-hmm. That's and I do remember can. it was an aggressive, an aggressive yep. takeoff. Yep, yep. They can, though. Beyond that, given that the airplane was light, the crew were not surprised by the aircraft's performance. With six passengers and I'm guessing probably yeah. little to nothing underneath. <laughs> yeah. The airplane had nothing but fuel, basically, to go all the way to and New York, would, which that isn't that far. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So the airplane was light, so they, they kind of figured, okay, it's just climbing like a rocket because it can. Yeah, because it's light. Yes. At 2,200 feet, the captain attempted to activate the autopilot, but without success. Uh-oh. And this was actually very alarming to him. He noted this out loud to the first officer, supposedly. We'll so, talk about that later so, on. Oh, okay. At that time, the captain noted that something was seriously wrong with the aircraft and asked the first officer to declare an emergency. It was that simple, like that quick. He just declared an emergency. I, it's hard to comprehend just exactly how fast that actually happened, but it was less than a minute after they were given clearance for takeoff. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Not very long. They they got on the runway. They rolled off the ground within 30 seconds of basically takeoff. They were declaring an emergency. Uh-oh. Something's mm-hmm. wrong. Something was amiss. Something is amiss. Mm-hmm. 
The air traffic controller then confirmed that the flight needed to return to the airport and then provided instructions to the flight to enter a downwind leg for runway 10. So downwind is running parallel but opposite to the direction you plan to land. So, you know, doing a big circle basically around the land, but downwind is running parallel to the runway going the opposite direction of landing. By this point, the aircraft was still being flown manually, but it was very difficult for the captain to do so. The captain began troubleshooting the issue, which seemed to be with the aircraft's pitch. So the airplane was heavily pitched up. Yes. And that was causing some serious control issues. Well, you have to be careful not to step into stall territory. We'll get there. He attempted a fix, but it was unsuccessful. The captain then asked the first officer to try the same fix on his side, but it was also unsuccessful. We'll talk about that later on. Why didn't they just push it down? They are. He is actively oh, flying the airplane they manually. They are both pushing down. I was getting there. And it's not, it's, uh. not, it's, not push, it's not going? Correct. The airplane seemed to want to continue climbing, even though both crew members were now pushing forward on the control column, pretty much all the way forward, which is never good. That's really heavy, too. I know. You have no <laughs> idea what's happening. No, like, I've, I... <sighs> I want to say that they're in, like, a weird configuration. That's what it seems like, but that doesn't make sense because even if they were in a weird autopilot mode or whatever, as soon as they pushed on the... Right, but the autopilot was never able to be activated, so we don't know yet at this point. weird. Something strange is happening. I know. By the way, up to this point, I have left out a lot of detail. I would hope, <laughs> I would hope you know. Yes, I have left out a lot of details up to this point. Over the next two minutes, the aircraft pitched up to a maximum of 27 degrees Nose up. I did not know that. <laughs> 27 degrees is relatively heavy, but we've talked about much worse. <laughs> You're not wrong. But to, so the average climb out on takeoff for an airliner is about 15, between 15 and 20, but 15 is pretty normal on initial climb out. Then they're going to level down to like 10, 5, you know, as they kind of climb up. They don't need as much pitch because they've got speed. So, but 27 is pretty heavy still. Uh, it's more than normal. Yeah? It would be noticeable. To anybody who's ever flown on an airliner before. Yeah, like, um, what is yes. happening? So it pitched up to a maximum of 27 degrees, but it was losing speed, of course, because it's pitched up. Right. 9.08 p.m. and 15 seconds. So mind you, this is only two and a half minutes after takeoff, three minutes after takeoff. The crew reported to the air traffic controller that they were, quote, in a stalling situation. Oh, see, told you. About a minute later, the crew once again called the air traffic controller and stated, quote, we can't pitch down, end quote. The flight crew used their engines and bank to control the pitch by, by banking the airplane, actually, because you're causing one wing to lose a little bit of aerodynamic lift, it actually causes the nose to also dip. dip. Yeah. So they actually use that. So Which is pretty smart. It is pretty smart, but you have to be very careful. Because you can go into a stall spin. Well, you can cause yourself to go into an accelerated stall or an aerodynamic stall in two different ways. I mean, you can if you're using too much yaw with the the rudder to counteract the roll so that you're not actually just turning and doing loops, then you have to that can cause a lot of delay issues uh, or delayed uh, response on the controls. And you can definitely get into a stalling situation, which is is. Dangerous, but if a pilot, if a really well-trained pilot obviously knows how to do it, which most airline pilots are really well-trained in this day and age, they can counteract this heavy pitch that they've got. As the crew struggled for control, the captain attempted a different fix. At 9, 10 p.m. and 36 seconds while attempting that fix, the crew suddenly regained control of the aircraft, flying at just 138 knots at that point, which was relatively slow. 
But suddenly they regain control of the aircraft. I love your face. Yeah, you look very confused. I don't understand. I know. We're going to talk you, all I about it. I know you left stuff out. <clears throat> I did. There, I there's, don't get it. There's still some relatively big hints in there, although I didn't leave in the biggest stuff. But the flight crew reported to the air traffic controller that they now had control of the aircraft again, but they still wanted to return to troubleshoot the issue as well as out of concern that it could happen again. So, of course, their goal was entirely, let's just get on the ground at this point. <laughs> yeah. They're still manually flying the airplane. They don't have a choice. 9.19 p.m. and 58 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to join the localizer approach to runway 10 at Atlanta. Mind you, they don't have any autopilot, so they're manually flying the localizer approach, which means they're using instruments to get to the runway properly and do a proper descent profile, but they're doing it all hand-flying. 9.21 p.m. and 16 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to land on runway 10, and the crew acknowledged. About 9.25 p.m., the flight landed uneventfully back at Atlanta on runway 10 and taxied back to the gate where all but the flight crew deplaned and maintenance personnel met the aircraft to troubleshoot the issue. So while nobody was injured in this event, it was certainly uh, scary yeah, for anybody on board. It was a little bit of a crazy occurrence. And the incident was definitely severe enough to catch public attention. I remember when this happened. Fast Aviation I, has a video on it. Yes, I distinctly remember when this happened. It this, happened right after we started the podcast. Yep. Yes. Yep. This incident also instantly caught the attention of the whole airline industry due to the nature of what occurred and the fact that it occurred on a very widely used aircraft type. The U-175, I mean, like I said, it's very popular, especially in the U.S. I mean, an insane number of flights happen on E-175s every day. I ride on them. Very frequently. Did you ride on one today? No, I did not. Oh, wow. Well. No, but actually, normally when I go to, to Salt Lake City, I very much ride on E-175s all the time, very much. Even Kansas City, I've flown on them a lot. So I'm very used to flying on these airplanes. They're very widely used still, and they're, they're, they're good airplanes. They're actually really comfortable from a passenger standpoint, but they are. This is, of course, very eye-opening because everybody was like, why did this airplane go through some crazy maneuvers with people on board? And return, like, or should we be concerned about our E-175s? So, that's all I got. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. This is kind of how incidents go in the modern day, though. It's like, something crazy happens, pilots are really good, they get themselves out well. <laughs> <laughs> pilots are good enough to get themselves out of the situation because they're trained well. Right. Airplane lands, nobody's injured, airplane's salvageable, obviously. You mean no uh, carts got embedded into the ceiling? No. <laughs> no, they didn't have any hard pitch overs. That's, that's the, at least that didn't happen. I was just thinking when you were, as you were going through that, how far we have come. Like you, you're, the podcast has gone over mm -hmm. decades of flights and I'm like, okay, yes. we're in 2019 and yeah, everyone's fine. It was just scary. It was just a 20 minute like roller coaster ride through the sky and, and it's okay. So it didn't end with a disaster, yeah. as most roller coaster rides in the yeah. sky do. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. This investigation was performed by the... NTSB! The National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, they got the black boxes. They don't really talk that much about them. Why would they have to? Except that, do you talk about what yes. did happen? Okay, I'll leave it to you. Do you talk about what actually happened? They don't have... The okay, once more, much like last week, this is a very abbreviated report. It does not have the same sections in the same order. 
We're working with what we got. It does not have section 1.11 flight recorders. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's my point. So I forgot to write about them. Oh, that's okay. This is me winging it. But you do talk about what happened. Yes. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> what happened to the CVR? No. You don't talk about what happened to the CVR? What happened to the CVR? Uh, while they were doing all the maintenance stuff, it recorded right over the flight. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> so they had the airplane on for all the maintenance stuff and they had all the all the like maintenance happenings in the cockpit on the CVR and realized they had none of the flight. <laughs> this is not the first or the last time this has happened. This has happened numerous times in the last four years. Yeah. So it's yeah. still a party foul. This is something that the NTSB has highlighted a lot, but it's really hard when you have an airplane that's returned to gate and it just seems like a maintenance issue. Maintenance goes to address the issue airplanes on the whole time so is the cvr well and not even that but if something happens while you're in the air and it takes you more than half an hour to land right right same problem right this Granted, one is a modern recorder so it should last a long time but mind you the maintenance fix a long this, time is still two hours right the maintenance fix for this was still it took a long time, time yeah. <laughs> if you have any transcon or transocean flights and something happens mid-flight right. you're not getting that information hence the 787's ability to record was it 26 hours now something like that 25 25 hours still, that's, that's what fdr's recording still that's a lot that's more than any one single you flight sounded will ever do. so disappointed by that by the way that's more 25. than any <laughs> <laughs> that's typically with most 787s that's at least three legs I wish they would just stream the data. I understand why they don't, because it's hackable. Mm-hmm. But I wish they would just do it, especially for accident flights, mm-hmm. especially for lost flights. Yep. If they were transmitting FDR data, you can mm-hmm. find the flight. Has a lot to do with the pilots' unions, too. I know. You gotta love unions. There's my disappointed voice again. Well, and you don't want them to be like eavesdropping every conversation and then like no, but micromanage I wanna... your work. That's, that's what, yes. No, but I want to find MH370. Yes, agreed. Yes, me personally. There yes. are a lot of theories. We'll get into that in the anyway. episode. But. So, this incident occurred during the plane's third flight of that day. During the first flight, the Engine Indicating and Crew Alerting System, or ECAS, gave an error message. Pitch trim switch one fail. Maintenance met the plane when it landed and partially removed the switch before deciding that it was best to defer maintenance based on the minimum equipment list, or the MEL. They then reinstalled the switch. However, they did not perform a functional test, but they also didn't have to because they deferred the maintenance. As such, they placed a placard to indicate that the trim switch was inoperative and not to be used. Oh, they used the trim switch, huh? They used the trim switch. So how that, how that happened, though? How that happened? <laughs> Here is this card that tells you not to use this thing. Big red button moment, right? Like, do not touch. I'm going to touch it. <laughs> but the, the curious thing to me is how that managed to happen. The timing of yeah. it. So because the in-op was placed on the yoke in LaGuardia. Right. The airplane then flew to Atlanta with, quote unquote, no issues. Because no the pilot issues. flying was the first officer. Which is why I noted all of that. Ah. So the captain never touched his during the flight to Atlanta. But then when he became the pilot flying on the return leg. But he was there yes. for the maintenance. Yes, but that was like four hours prior. So? <laughs> A lot happens in four hours in the airline industry. So, after takeoff, the captain instructed the first officer to declare an emergency due to a runaway pitch trim 
at which time the captain started the memory items for the runaway pitch trim checklist. Good job. Good training. That was the first fix that I talked about. Including pushing and holding the autopilot trim disconnect button, which he instructed the first officer to do on his side as well. But nothing changed and they continued to struggle with controlling the pitch. Both of them having to use both hands to counter the nose-up pitch motion left neither of them able to use the quick reference handbook to troubleshoot the problem. Turns out it's hard to read a book when you're having to push down on a yoke. Yeah, turns out. Who'd have thought? They then switched the system over to use the first officer's pitch trim switch, and they regained control. Three minutes later, the captain took back control, and the FDR recorded multiple pitch trim up commands from the captain's pitch trim switch once more leading to a mistrimmed condition. As such, the first officer took control until the end of the flight, and they landed uneventfully. So every time- Wasn't there a placard? Yes. Didn't it say it wasn't working? Yes. So despite the fact that he was also in the cockpit when they did that, um, there was a thing on the the switch that said, hey, you shouldn't use this, it's not working. Quote. Yes. Placards for inoperative equipment are typically collated- with the related control to remind pilots that the equipment should not be used. However, and that is not my however, that is the NTSB. However, the pitch trim switch position on the yoke did not allow space for a placard on or near the switch. So it wasn't actually like by the switch on the yoke? Because it's very small. It's a very small switch. space. There's no, there's no space for the sticker to be there. So rather than putting it there, they probably put it over like his, his side of the trim. They put it somewhere. Or something. So essentially, the we, trim just, indication. we just have a failure of lockout and tagout, basically. Let me continue. Post-incident examination of the captain's pitch trim control switch proved that it was installed backward. <laughs> Likely after maintenance looked at it this morning and reinstalled it and placarded it. Again, they didn't need a functional test because it was not to be used. So the combination of the reverse pitch trim switch combined with the captain's use of the deferred trim switch ended in the pitch excursion. Investigators attribute his use of the in-op item as a result of muscle memory that exists despite an action potentially being inappropriate. He confirmed this in his interview when he stated that it was second nature to use the trim switch on the yoke. Mm -hmm. That's hilarious. So the switch itself is installed on the yoke because... Right. Yeah, because I was wondering yep. why, like, each pilot had their own switch yeah. to control the same system. Yep. So literally, it's on. Look the at yoke. the yoke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You pull it open, and you're like, "Hey, I'm going to put this in backwards." Which, but they weren't going to be using it, so they didn't need to test it they to just, see if they reinstalled it correctly. The it's yeah. deferred. Look at this. Don't touch it. Don't don't with it. It's just it's there. But to move on. They just leave the switch out. No, because no. then it, you're exposing circuitry. Uh-huh. Don't do that. On a very high-touch area. So. Well, I mean, like, surely there must... Sorry. <laughs> surely there must be, like, some way to, like, disconnect it and to make it inoperable so that, like, someone messing with it oh, wouldn't... I, I yes. see that smile. There is. They didn't do that. And they didn't have to do that. It was not required for them to disable it. Mm-hmm. I bet that's different now. Actually, <laughs> not necessarily, but... Let me continue. Yeah. I only have one paragraph left, you That's guys. Fine. There's not a lot here to No, there's with. not. We'll talk about more stuff in the recommendations. Although not causal to the pitch excursion, technically, investigators delved into why the pitch trim switch was failing. Maintenance records showed a history of the same ECAST message between August 4th and the incident date, which I didn't happen to take note of. November, November. 6th. November 6th. So over the last three months, it's happened. What did I just say? Oh, I hadn't said yet. 
resulting in five replacements of the switch and two replacements of the horizontal stabilizer actuator control electronics. Which is a lot. <laughs> That's seven maintenance actions in three months. That's a lot. Didn't we go it's over abnormal. that if you... You replace the thing and you replace the thing. It's yes. probably and something there inside are, that's there, not working. There are triggers for that in modern day systems for maintenance tracking. Yes, for the airlines. However, so 2019 is not modern day? It is. It is. However, this one didn't seem to be common enough still to be flagged. But because of this incident, they had something that maintenance doesn't normally, though they can, doesn't normally use. They had the FDR. The FDR provided more answers when it recorded multiple trim-fail occurrences along with the ECAS messages, leading investigators to locate a short-to-ground of a single circuit in the switch. It was created by contact with an incorrectly tucked pigtail from the safety wire retaining the forward mechanical stop bolt for the captain's control column. The wires carrying the signal for the pitch-trim-switch-trim-up command were damaged and chafed potentially allowing continuity to the untucked safety wire pigtail, though there is no evidence that both wires shorted to ground simultaneously, as that would have caused an oral alert of trim. A replacement of the damaged wires would have solved the continuing error messages. So the reason that it kept recurring was because there was chafing between the wire wire, and the wire harness to basically a bolt. Which then just grounded the signal. Yeah, it eventually grounded the signal and then it didn't work properly. So awesome. Yeah. Do I know what half of those parts are that I just said? No. That's Does okay. it matter? Not really. The big thing is that's what they fixed. They didn't fix like the in-op and the like making sure that you couldn't use it. They fixed the problem well, that's that the- causes it. <laughs> yes, but that's <laughs> to go in up. Ultimately, that's not what caused the incident. No. No. The captain's use of an in-op system was stupid. Not but, great. But if it wasn't on the switch. I know, I know, I know. Human element. It's human factors. One-on-one. It's still dumb. Yeah, but it's going to happen. It's still dumb. Anyway. <laughs> also, why didn't the first officer say something? He did. That it was the pitch trim? The whole thing is we don't have the CVR, so we don't know oh, what was said. But that's... yes, there was whole conversations about it. They were troubleshooting the whole time. And actually, I can't really fault their piloting because they didn't know in the moment exactly what the problem was. They knew it was something with the pitch trim, which they both testified to. They were, they were very open with the investigators. However, it was the whole still making the best out of a terrible situation that they had to do, and they did it. I mean, they managed to land an airplane safely that went through. Well, they also identified there was a problem almost right away. So, yes. Like, when you're saying not they were quick. them, they're like, yep, something's wrong. We're landing. Like, yeah, yeah, they were quick about it. They were quick if about they it. could land. Well, yeah. Right. Had issues pushing the nose over. Right. For a little while there, I'm sure that was really horrifying. It's a brown pants kind of moment. <laughs> yeah, they, I'm sure they had to change pants on Both, landing. Hopefully they were wearing brown yeah. pants. But I mean, like, to have that kind of, like, that quick thinking in that moment to mm-hmm. be able to be like, okay, let's figure this out really, really quickly. Otherwise, yeah. we're going to kill ourselves and a whole bunch of other people. Like, Right. Well, six. Hold on. Yeah, six other people. That's a bunch. Yeah. So we will take our break here and come back with what little we have left. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... 
You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And we're back. Do you have findings? There are no findings. Okay. So you start this one off. (laughs) The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this incident to be the captain's use of the pitch trim switch, which had been placarded inoperative but not deactivated, resulting in the airplane pitching up when the captain was trying to trim down. The trim commands were reversed due to maintenance personnel's incorrect installation of the pitch trim switch. Contributing to the incident was the operator's delay in incorporating service bulletin 170-27-0051, which would have prevented the switch from being installed inverted. So there's that. I think that's just so not... But that wasn't really even pertinent. The bigger, no. The bigger thing was the first part of that whole... He well, used it. In the recommendation, or in, in that... Probable they, cause. In the probable cause, they said it was placarded, but it, earlier on, it was acknowledged that placard was not by the switch. It wasn't right. by the switch. It couldn't be because right. The well, it is couldn't small. be. So where would have you? Which I was gonna. Bring I could this not up. figure out where they put the placard. Have you seen the yokes on the E one seventy fives? No. Pull this up. Pull this up. Can you turn the TV back on? They're Concord style. No. Concord style. They're what? Concord style. This is unique to the E jets and the Embraers. It's weird and different from all the rest ah! of the industry. One, two, or three. She goes, one. Ah, one. Oh, I hate that. Why do I hate it so much? You can imagine how that feels to like hand fly like that. Like It looks like handlebars on a bike. <laughs> yeah. But you have to think about where that hinge is too at the very bottom of that yoke. So you, when so normally with a yoke, it's like a it's a toss like this, right? right? But with this, it's a full arm movement. Like this. Hey, look, the bold method did an entire article on this incident. Yep. Huh. Yep. And there's the pitch trim switch. I feel like you could still oh. put an in-op over the top of that. And like yeah. not the switch itself, but maybe over like above the switch. I am I I don't know. I call shenanigans on that. But where they put it was probably down on the pitch trim panel. Here? Yeah. That's circled? Yeah. I'm going to send Miranda the link to this page so that she can add it. I messaged them a long the time ago things. and they never got back to me. I used to know those guys. The Bold Method people? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, they used to be some of my clients. They're based out oh. at Centennial. Mm-hmm. But then the other question that just came up from looking at the probable causes, they said they had a bulletin about how to install the switch. There was a bulletin about something such that the switch could not be installed reversed. But again, that mm-hmm. truly wasn't the issue. The issue was they used the pitch trim switch in general. Right. right, but and had, it, had was... it not been invert, I mean, like, there's a couple of things that it seems like if they weren't done, if the placard had been right by the switch, or if, if they had done a backwards. functional test on, or if they'd done a function, like, there's, it seems like there was a few things that could have prevented went this. wrong. And before all of that is the wearing wire harness. Remember yeah. that that is actually the root cause of the whole thing. But lest ye forget, bringing it back. <laughs> I I am thankful that they did not include the wear to the wire harness as part of the probable cause or the contributory factors. No, because because of it course. truly wasn't. Right. At the end of the day, right. They had flown with it as was mm-hmm. in yes. existence. Yes, that's why it's an MEL item. But still, it never would have been an issue in the first place. Now here's one of the things that changed: the yes. pitch trim switch is now an MEL item. Right. You have to have it operative before you can fly. Right. If that had been in effect that day, they would not have continued with the rest of the flights that day until the switch had been right. fixed. To me, anything that affects your actual control surfaces should be MEL. End of story. I know that a lot of airliners have different things where that allows them not to have to have them, but if it affects 
A control surface probably just should be an MEL item. Well, you, you know, it's probably more profitable not to have a crash or an incident to, you know, have yeah, this ideally. Stuff investigated because yeah. that's just more money wasted. So uh-huh. may as well just do it right the first yeah. time. Like, yeah. you crashes, know you would think, they crashes, they don't yeah. really have to deal with very often anymore, but incidents still cost a lot of money. Do you know how much Boeing would have saved at this point? <laughs> sure. With the max. So much blah. money. <sighs> when are those? Those are on our schedule, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. I think they they're are. in November. They're in March. Are they in March? <laughs> Far away still. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Coming soon to a podcast near you. This, one, this one in particular. You want to go into the litany of recommendations? Yeah, it's actually not that bad. You'd be surprised because a lot of it repeats. So Copy, paste, copy, paste. Pretty much. But that's because they issued them to several different organizations. I.e. the first one, which is the National Civil Aviation Agency of Brazil. A lot of people just went, what? what? <laughs> I, I'm one of them. Me too. Embraer is from Brazil. Brazil okay. And oh. yeah, that right yeah. then and there. They issued it to Brazil. Do they have their own organization now? Yes. That's not the military? I mean, I don't know if it's military owned or not. Because the military just seems to own everything anyways, no matter what it's named in Brazil. Anyways, the National Civil Aviation Agency of Brazil, the other NCAA. (laughs) The other NCAA. They issued these recommendations, the following recommendations to them, because they're the ones with oversight of Embraer. So while they can issue the recommendations to Embraer, it won't actually do anything unless the regulators of aviation in Brazil regulate it and do something about it. It does not appear to be military. Interesting. But it also is not NCAA. It's ANAC because you know Portuguese. Portuguese. (laughs) But it is completely civil, from what I can tell. The body has the legal status of special autarky? Autarky? That's a new one for me. I don't know. Which means that legally the body has more administrative and financial autonomy than a body directly linked to the direct administration of the federal government. Okay. So it's quasi-autonomous? So it's like its own form of government. I don't know. That's really strange. But anyways. Sorry. Anarchy Airlines. Yeah. It is A-N-A-C. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's close. So, to the National Civil Agency of Brazil. Aviation Agency of Brazil. Yes. They recommended requiring Embraer to develop instructions for operators of Embraer EMB 170, 175, 190, 195, Lineage 1000 series, which are all part of the EasyJets airplanes, to inspect the wiring in the captain's and first officer's control columns for damage, replace where needed, and ensure proper clearance from adjacent components, including the forward mechanical stop bolt and its safety wire. This recommendation was classified as closed acceptable action. They did it. They fixed the wiring so that it doesn't do that anymore. That's a, that's a very easy engineering fix and very reasonable fix well they they accepted the inspection and yes. replacement yes the next part is the design yes they recommend that once Embraer develops instructions for the wiring of the captains and first officers control columns as requested in safety recommendation above we'll say airplanes to inspect the wiring for damage in compliance with Embraer's instructions replace where needed and ensure proper clearance from adjacent components including the forward mechanical stop bolt and its safety wire that one's still open open response they're working Acceptable on it. response, yeah. Granted, of, it was... Ex- that was in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, September 2020. As of 2020, they're working on it. Mm-hmm. They recommend that once inspections are completed as outlined in the instructions developed in the response 
to the safety recommendations above, require Embraer to review the inspection results and revise design and maintenance documentation for the EMB 170, 175, 95, and Lineage 1000 series airplanes as necessary to prevent any hazards identified during the inspections. So going further than just just where it where it wore on that one wire, inspect the whole thing, keep an eye on them, find the same spots, create a better inspection program, and re-engineer it yep. so that it doesn't continue to do that. Which is basically what the next one is, too. Yep. And Correct. retrofit it. Yep. They recommend that once Embraer revises design and maintenance documentation for Embraer... 170, 175, and 190, 195 lineage 1000 series airplanes as requested and safety recommendations above require operators of these airplanes to incorporate these changes. So anything that's out there, retrofit. They also recommend mandating the incorporation of Embraer service bulletins, the ones that we spoke of before, on all applicable airplanes as specified in the service bulletins. So everything that was already in place before Make sure you're actually doing it. This is always, this always seems to be a problem with service bulletins. It's always the compliance problem. How do you, I mean, there needs to be oversight, obviously, but it needs to be constant. And, and with some of these service bulletins, when you issue it to non-scheduled maintenance, it is harder to be sure that it is complied with. If it's a scheduled maintenance item, it shows up on their basically list of to-do things, their work order, as they go through the scheduled maintenance, but when you get to a non-scheduled maintenance event like this, where it was shown to be not working at one point, they called maintenance over to the airplane to look at it, they MEL it, but then they didn't ever actually comply with the service bulletin, because it was also being pushed down line for eventually somebody to look into and fix. But in the meantime, the service bulletin still wasn't complied with, and that's kind of their point. They recommend that in coordination with the FAA, Embraer and U.S. operators determine if changes to the Embraer 170, 175, 90, 95, and Lineage 1000 series airplanes pitch trim runaway checklists are required to adequately address all potential trim system failures and make such changes as necessary. Also open when this report came out, but seems pretty reasonable to me. Work with everybody that actually deals with the airplane and come up with a better checklist for this to make sure that a recurrence of this should a recurrence happen that the crew reacts correctly? And it's not that they necessarily didn't, but it took a little bit of time for them to get the right answer. So just getting to that answer a little bit faster. Expedite it. Yeah, expediting it, making sure that the checklist is a little bit easier. The memory items. So we don't really talk about this a whole lot, but it came up in this one at one point. When it comes to checklists, especially when it comes to emergency checklists, there are two components to it. There's the from memory, and then there is the written checklist. And with each emergency checklist, there's typically a section. The first section, it's usually one, two, three points. It should be very, very few that are from memory. And they do that so that in the event of emergency, you can react immediately without having to pull out a checklist on the most important parts. So you do the most important things first to mitigate the issue, to begin mitigating the issue. And then you get the checklist out to complete. The remaining items, but you have to do the memory ones first to ensure that the airplane is continuing to fly safely. Makes sense, right? What 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 if you can't find the right checklist? <laughs> you mean because the QRH is massive? Because it's not actually that quick or referency. Would this be part of auto flight? Maybe. No, there's rudder trim. Rudder, yeah. 
None of that. It's not in flight controls. Flight instrument displays? No. Most definitely not. What? What's that book? This is the quick reference handbook. Wait, for, that's the quick reference? <laughs> yeah, that's the quick reference for a particular aircraft type, not this one. The hell is that quick? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's the little tabs, like, you could kind of. Once and you. I, and I'm guessing, like, if you know the book, you Once can you learn get to your it. way around a little bit, it's pretty quick for you to navigate. So you're saying I should not jump in a cockpit and hope that that book is going to do a single thing <laughs> no, for me? No, definitely not. No. This really is for those that are trained to use it. And it is, I will say, tough. It is. So, they are, that being said, on the front and back are the truly emergency items. The immediate. The back has, here's how to evacuate. The front has loss of braking, drift down, emergency descent, smoke and fumes, airspeed unreliable. Those are the big ones. Uh-huh. They have some unenunciated ones, which are also, like, please look at these promptly. Yeah, which are things that happen to the airplane without actually showing up as a warning or anything on the cockpit. Uh, drift down, emergency descent, biochemical hazard or threat, bomb on board, mm-hmm. ditching, emergency landing for an all-engine failure, evacuation, evacuation preparation, forced landing, overweight landing, rejected takeoff, structural damage or controllability check, maybe it's that, tail strike on takeoff, vibration in airframe, or this one. Volcanic ash encounter. Mm-hmm. So I guess that one's not entirely that old because. <laughs> okay, so our eight. Whatever difference. episode that came I out, I mean long time. that old. Yeah, yeah. This was definitely in my adult lifetime. That would have been fifty three ninety then. Oh, good god. Probably. It's one of the two. Leo was on two episodes. There is quite an old British Airways, not that old, I guess, but British Airways uh, incident. Wasn't it the was it the Icelandic uh, volcano? No. This was in Indonesia. It was Flight Nine, mother. <laughs> and that was in 1982. This is when it really became apparent they survived, but it was very dangerous situation. The whole world came to find out. That's insane. You might you might notice that that's the summary there. Mm-hmm. We had an episode on this one. Highly recommend go listen to it. It is, it is a good one. It's interesting. I, I think I remember listening to this one, mm-hmm. but this does make me think of the the the, the Icelandic volcano. Um, yes. God, I want to say like something like twenty years ago ish mm-hmm. that they grounded all the flights in advance because they knew hey, this isn't mm-hmm. going to work. Well, it happened. It actually happened. It may have been one instance, but then it also happened again in Iceland with the Iceland volcano where it grounded all of Europe for the better part of a week and that was in i want to say like 2000 this is like late 2000s early 2010s if i remember correctly yeah it was in the early 2010s i'm pretty sure that's the one i'm thinking of yeah mount esgifluflufla or however you pronounce it i'm not <laughs> yeah yeah Ooh, i remember this volcano being in a plane that comes in contact with an ash cloud seems like a pretty terrifying experience it Definitely. actually so really, the experience isn't even that bad, but it what makes the engines flame out yes. and stop. But it working. does do crazy things because it, it looks like St. Elmo's fire on the windscreen. Yeah, because it's friction and electrical currents and things because that happens in it, it, ash it'll clouds. it'll like scratch. Uh, up the it'd windscreen be like uh, really it'd be like flying through one of those mall Tesla ball things you can buy. Yeah, it causes all this light like light to occur over the. Surfaces, basically. 
Okay, so it'd be cool, but you'd be terrified. Yeah, yes. at the same time. They figured it out. Eventually. No one got hurt. Eventually. Anyway, I don't really have any more recommendations to go through because they basically repeated everything beyond Embraer's engineering, but all of the service bulletins and working with the FAA as well as the, the NCAA or the ANCA or whatever it is, working together and working with the airlines and such to comply with the service bulletins, comply with the inspections, and provide the fixes and implement the fixes that Embraer comes up with, basically. That's it. That Really, they recommended all that to the FAA, and that's it. So it's nothing beyond what they already recommended. I wish there was an index for this thing. You know. So I don't have really much else to talk about beyond that. Because it really was, I mean, this is how, it does show how CRM works now. And it works to prevent actual accidents from happening when something goes awry. Goes awry and as serious as this, we've talked about in the past similar things happening where it becomes uncontrollable per se. And the crew doesn't manage to save the airplane. Yeah. But they did in this But case. they did, yeah. They could have easily stalled out easily. of the sky. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't have had time to recover if they but, stalled. But good piloting is what prevented that. Exactly. Good training and good piloting is what prevented that. Look at the Other difference. than not reading instructions. Well, but, no, to, to an extent, this, this incident almost comes off as just like something to not even really think about, really, because it's just such a minor, it's such a minor thing, and it was corrected yeah. so quickly by the crew and then fixed and addressed right. so quickly. Yeah, it got the attention of everybody, but it was handled like a normal incident. I mean, like normal day of operations, basically. I mean, yep. The NTSB getting involved was the only piece that was unique to this versus most of the time maintenance things happen. They happen in flight. The airplane lands. Maintenance takes care of it. The airplane goes on flying. So does the crew. That's it. That's it. So that's, uh, do I even remember the flight? (laughs) (laughs) Was it 4439? It was 4439. Oh, American Airlines 4439. I'm like, what airline is this again? I never remember numbers. And I did this time. Yep. She's the one who's good at remembering numbers. I never remember the flight number. <laughs> I would have remembered this one only because it's the same numbers as last week. But I'm different order. Just different. In, in the different episodes where you're talking about something. Oh, hey, that happened in flight number. one. Yeah. And I'm listening, like, how do you remember all of these? There's, we don't. Very we don't few, remember sometimes. There's very but sometimes few you numbers. do. Right. I have definitely listened to I just to proved episodes. it. I thought it was BA Flight 9, but then I doubted myself, and I thought it was... And see, I wouldn't have ever known the British Airways number. I don't know. I don't remember any of the numbers. I, there's very few flight numbers I ever remember. Do I remember episode numbers? Absolutely not. The only one I ever remember is 232. I would... Do you remember Lot 16? No. I don't remember the number. I know the accident. What episode was it? It was early. I don't know. Very early. What? Yeah, the second episode? Yeah. So, so very early. EA4- see, none of that matters to me. EA-401. I know that one, yes. I know EA-401 easily. Colgan Air? Yes. Which I don't know the flight number. Two. I don't remember after five, after four. <laughs> it, it, it's one of the Atlantic Southwest, Southeast oh, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, one of our first recommendations. Swiss Air yep. was episode nine? Yes. Mm-hmm. Correct. Garuda something was six. Glad you know. Anyway, I, I probably look at the list more than anybody does. I don't remember does. any of that. I don't remember any of that. The Max is in... March. Yes. Yeah, okay. End of March. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I like, that's I like the, the March. Or that's the Max. Yeah. The Max, yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you like my cause? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't even have to talk about it. We know what it is. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. 
that being said, you should do the thing and go to Patreon and check out the stuff on Patreon and be a yes. patron. Just and saying. also check out our merch. And you should check out our merch and you should get ducks and you should sign up for the newsletter. And you should send Milo toys because he says he's deprived. No, he's not deprived. Please don't send him toys. <laughs> he has so many toys. We're drowning in toys. He, I relocated the box of toys and now he like suddenly remembered they all existed. So now he's he's not even playing with any of them. He's literally just pulling each one out one at a time. That's all he's doing. Squeak for a moment. Crimple for a moment. Oh, thank you. You gave it to me. And then he just goes, gets another one. Yep. He, he's he like a toddler. Brought the pizza this time. He's gotten like five or six toys out now. You want your mozzarella pizza back? Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Thanks, guys, for being here. Thank you. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.